God bless you all. Thank you all for waiting. I hope you guys had a good time in that extended greeting time, saying hello to people. Hopefully, um, you know, you enjoyed that. I, you know, I have a stent, so sometimes things happen <laughs> inside of me because uh, I recently had, recently had a procedure on my kidneys. Um, but anyways, it's good to be with all of you. Thank you all for coming. Um, I hope that all of you had a, a great week. Um, an eventful week for us. We've been pretty eventful, Lida and I. Um, I recently got a new job, which is great. Uh, yeah, so that's good news. And um, I, I was at a quince yesterday, and it's just been a busy, busy uh, week. But thankfully, we're all here together, and we're ready to hear f- from what God has for us. But before going any further, I would like us to pray. Um, We are continuing the series that we've been working on, which is the series on work and just looking at what the Bible has to say concerning work. We've seen that work is good, that it's something that, you know, we're blessed to do, even though sometimes it doesn't feel that way. And part of the reason that it doesn't feel that way sometimes is that, you know, there's this sinful nature there, there's corruption, there's confusion, the, the earth has been cursed. And today we're going to talk about images of God, Bezalel, and Sabbath. Images of God, Bezalel, and Sabbath. So let's bow our heads and let's all pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you may be with us, that you may speak to us, that your Holy Spirit may move in our lives, and that whatever we hear today may not only stay with us today, but that your Spirit may carry out for this entire week. Lord, we need you. We need you for this, this week and this life and everything that we're doing, God, and I pray that today we may know that you are with us, Father. We love you. Be glorified today. It's not about us. It's about you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. There was this businessman, a businessman whose name was David. He was he closed himself in his office, and he was there while his board of directors considered his demands. In two decades, David had risen to become CEO of a high-profile technology company. And he was doing a great job. Sales were going up. But now it was time for David to move on, to let the next leader lead. David was going to get a good payout deal. He was going to get good money. And he he was going to leave on a good retirement. He was going to get three times his annual earnings. But he wanted more. He wanted millions of dollars. He wanted a lake house. His wife wanted a beach house. They had already bought homes for their parents. And David did good for his family. But he wanted more. David came from a family that struggled dad struggled with work and money was always tight. David learned from his parents, did what he could, grew, succeeded, made them proud, honored them. But David's mom asked him, so David, you have enough already. Do you really have to find the next bigger and better company? What's behind all this Drive. Ambition. That's behind all this drive. Ambition. David and his office, the board members, done with all their talks. They made a deal. One of the board members told David, David, we really need you to honor the contract and stay the full year. The company needs you to lead it right now. You're one of the key reasons we thought buying the company was a good deal. You're smart. You're a good leader. You can negotiate partnerships and deals to keep this company out front. We can't agree to letting you out now. 
David heard the decision of the board. Another year. I want the full payout now without staying another year. I want the next best thing now. So he was cunning. He thought, okay, they want me to stay. But if I tell them I didn't want to stay, they, they won't keep me here since no one can lead if their heart isn't in it, right? So a week passed and people could tell that he wasn't really in it. He wasn't really trying. He stayed, but he had a bad attitude. So the board decided to let him go with a million-dollar payout. And David, right afterwards, went to work at another company just to make more money with no care for his investors. Exodus 34.17 says, Do not make cast images of gods for yourself. Today we are talking about idols, and Luis did, again, great job with drawing different idols. I thought uh, that guy was Thanos for a little bit. <laughs> Just for a little bit. <laughs> idols, what do you think about when you hear the word idol? Maybe you think about American Idol, or teen idols, or celebrities, YouTubers, TikTokers, social media influencers, idols. You might also think about your ancestors who maybe bowed down to figurines or images. Maybe you have thought of idols in the area of work. Idols in work are like workaholism or greed, having an obsessive devotion towards success or money. All these thoughts with regards to idols are legitimate. That is idolatry, that is making images of gods. But those are extreme cases. Cultures, people make idols that are more subtle, like the idol of race that was so common not so long ago. The idol of race led businesses to close their doors to people from different races and people with different ideas. The idol of nationalism led industrialists to support militaristic programs that were destructive and killed fellow image bearers. But something more common in our everyday life are the idols of social stability and individuality. You know, in Japan, where the idols of social stability and the rights of individual are not that prominent, in Japan, it's not acceptable to do what David did, the person that we spoke about in the beginning. It wasn't accept- it's not acceptable to move from company to company in order to find a better salary or for companies to lay workers off to sustain profits. The Japanese... It has been, and it has been changing, but it has been common to see lifelong employees. It's common to see employees to stay with the same company for their entire lives. There's a greater importance in Japan on loyalty than making money. In Japan, employees are less concerned about money and more concerned with status and reputation of the company. They feel like they belong to the company, like it's theirs. And of course, loyalty can become an idol. You can exploit your loyal workers. But in America, we have our idols of ambition and individuality. We don't necessarily worship statues, but we do worship ambition. We also worship, which we'll talk about in a little bit, we worship reason. And we worship, we could say this is self, and social stability. These are our idols in America. After the Enlightenment, us Westerners put our reasoning faculties on a pedestal. Our reason is right, and no one can tell us otherwise. Because I can reason for myself, I don't need you to tell me what to do. I can do what is best for me. 
We don't need societal structures or institutions telling us what to do. I can find meaning for myself. Choice, my choice, my feelings. Those are the things that are most holy and sacred in our lives. We are entitled to whatever we want. Do not make cast images of God's we have made idols for ourselves. As Tim Keller said, the human self has replaced God. David, the business person in the beginning, did what he did because he elevated himself and made himself an idol, made himself a God, a lowercase g, God. Meaning, is no longer found in God anymore. Meaning is not in family or other people. Meaning is in self. What can I do to improve myself, to help me? We have become idols. In the beginning, God, there, there, there's only one person who is actually God, uppercase G God. No one else but he made humans in his own image while there is one god he has made images of himself us we are god's images we reflect him but what we have done is we disconnect ourselves from god and we say we are god ourselves instead of saying that we are just an image of god we just reflect him we're not god himself no one is God except Yahweh himself. And because of that, we should not make images of God for ourselves. It is delusional. It is a farce. It is a farce to make other gods who are not really God, God. They're, they're not God. The Israelites, God's people, had left Egypt they were free from captivity, away from the Egyptian gods. And now they could worship the one true living God. And Exodus 34, 17 talks about a true reality. Recognize reality that there's only one God and there's no need to make these other idols. There's one God we shouldn't worship, a golden calf or ourselves. God wants all the worship, all our praise, because that is reality. That is true. He is the only one worthy of our worship, of our praise. No one else is. When we practice idolatry, whether we're worshiping ourselves or some idea, we are giving worship to something that is truly not worth it, not worth our devotion or our praise or our time. But God, he is worthy. Therefore, break the idols that you have in your life. Your sacred stones, smash them. Your goddess poles, take them down. This doesn't mean that you go vandalize the mosque because Muslims worship Allah, the God of Muhammad. It doesn't mean that we go destroy the Buddha statues, we don't do that because that is just disrespectful. And we don't have that right. We live in a pluralistic society, and Christians are religiously tolerant. At least we should be. We advance our message not by force, but by love. But we do destroy our idols, the idols of self, the idols of of individuality, the idea of saying, my reason is always right. Whatever prospers me is always good. I read this recently. What God wants us to do instead is to fall so in love with him that we are unwilling to have any other lovers. But how hard this is for us to do not long after arriving in Asia, one missionary wrote, 
I am sitting this morning in the kitchen, and I am caught up in two extremes. As I look out onto the makeshift type of kitchen on the porch-like area, I think with such fondness of our comfortable home in the States. I think of how big it was, how there was so much room for the kids to play, of how well our kitchen worked, of how large our refrigerator was, how many products there were to eat, etc., etc. I also think of the incredible convenience of the minivan and the protection of seatbelts. I wonder, what have I been falling in love with over the last 11 years? Have I been falling in love with comfort Or have I been falling in love with Jesus? I fear that all my comforts have started to act like dark sunglasses. And I have not seen the glory of my Lord. What have you been falling in love with? What are are you teaching your children to love? Is it comfort, success, money? Is it a game or hobby? Is it your work? God is a jealous lover in every best sense of the word jealous. And he wants you to love him alone. Do not make images of God for yourselves. This was a command that God made for the nation of Israel. Israel had been under Egyptian bondage. And the Egyptians exploited the Israelites, the Hebrew people. The Hebrew people had received unfair compensation, but God had freed them. And now Israel could make a place of worship. They could make a a tabernacle. That's what this drawing down here is. It's a tent, essentially. It was a movable worship place, a church, you might say. Tabernacle. It was a movable tabernacle. It could move from place to place. It was a place for God's presence to dwell among his people. And I want us to read in Exodus 31, 1 through 5. I'll read it for you all. I want to read about the builder of the temple, Bezalel. The Lord also spoke to Moses, Look, I have appointed by name Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with God's spirit with wisdom, understanding, and ability in in every craft to design artistic works in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut gemstones for mounting, and to carve wood for work in every craft. This introduction, these five verses, is is a pretty extensive introduction for someone who was not an apostle, was not a king, was not a warrior, not a priest, nor a prophet. The apostles don't get the long description that Bezalel just got. But an artist got several verses talking about how God had filled him with his spirit, with wisdom, with understanding and ability. And what was the purpose of God filling him? God did not fill Bezalel because Bezalel would preach. God did not fill Bezalel because he would sing or would teach or would pastor. God filled Bezalel so he could work as an artist. Historically, some of the world's greatest artists have been followers of Jesus. They had wonder for God, and they wanted to help others also have that wonder for God. Bezalel, the the artist, was the first person we find in the Bible that was filled with the Spirit of God. God filled and commissioned an artist. Just as he called and commissioned prophets, priests, kings, pastors, and missionaries, God gave Bezalel wisdom, the ability to build a beautiful tabernacle, a beautiful place to worship God. 
I know that currently we are in a garage, but I do think there is value in having a beautiful church. It reminds us of God's beauty. The Israelites had Bezalel build this beautiful tabernacle. By partnering with God's spirit, Bezalel built a beautiful tabernacle, the same spirit that we see in the very beginning that, that hovered over the waters was the same spirit that filled and empowered Bezalel to create a beautiful moving tabernacle. And this tabernacle was like the Garden of Eden in Gen- that we saw in Genesis 1 and 2. The descriptions of, of how Bezalel was supposed to build the temple were reminiscent of how God created the cosmos. In the tabernacle, God was with his people. And this place only came to be because of an artist. Being an artist is not easy. I wouldn't consider myself an artist, although all of us dabble in art. But I know that being an artist is not easy. I I watched a movie recently on Van Gogh, and I just saw how it was really hard for him to be confident in his art and, you know, always trying to perfect his design. It, it takes effort. It costs something to produce a good work of art. And people might even undervalue the art piece. As an artist, you will often be misunderstood. You'll be underpaid, undervalued, even in churches. Churches really don't consider art as a serious way to serve God. It is changing, but still, by and large, a lot of churches don't consider art as a serious way to serve God. Some say that art is not a legitimate call at all. Nowadays, it's, it's hard to see Christians view their art as their calling. There was an art student from Wheaton College, a college in Chicago, that said, God made me to be an artist. He gave me that talent. That's my response to God, to his world, to his message of salvation. When you see something that's so wonderful, you want to join. The student also shared that she was sick of her peers' indifference to her calling. She was fed up with comments that suggested art is a waste of time, a field for slackers and weirdos. She was fed up. She wrote, I felt like I I had to justify myself. That is a terrible thing. I am a child of God. God made me a person who sees the world in a manner that is different from most perceptions. He gave me the urge to create. Maybe churches have a negative view of the arts because of idolatry. Objects of art have been objects of religious worship. During the iconoclastic movement of the 8th century or the Protestant Reformation, church leaders tried smashing this form of idolatry. They see these objects of art and they want to smash them by taking statues or other works of art out of the church and destroying them because there were some people who would worship the art. The leaders were not, per se, against art, per se, but against the abuse of art, which led to idolatry. Unfortunately, some Christians fail to understand the difference between idolatry and artistic expression. Thus, there is this lingering suspicion about the visual arts. Nowadays, Christians are suspicious about art because The world of art has been dominated by an anti-Christian view of the world. Modern and postmodern art has focused on absurdity and ugliness. So much contemporary art is not about order, peace, or love. It's about the fallen world. It doesn't focus on redemptive qualities. But just because people use art to convey unhelpful or even destructive messages, Christians should not dismiss art altogether. Art 
is part of everyday life, whether we like it or not. Every time we build a sanctuary, even within this place, arrange furniture in a room, produce some notes, take a picture, we are making artistic decisions. It's not a matter about if we will be artists. It's about embracing godly artistic standards. If we dismiss art, we are dismissing the possibility for God to work through our art. Embrace art. Have high aesthetic standards. Don't give cut-rate pieces. Don't just look for the functional, but find the beautiful. Not what just works, but what produces wonder. Christians don't need to be known as artists who create tacky artwork. Artwork that's poor quality, that appeals to low taste. Christian music should not be known as lower quality than popular songs. Our movies should be the best movies. They should not be cheesy, superficial, or lower quality movies that are so prevalent in streaming services like PureFlix. I appreciate movies like The Passion of Christ and the series The Chosen and the videos of the Bible Project because they don't just think, ah, we have the best message, so that, we, that means we don't have to try in art. We could compromise in the area of art and we could produce lower quality things because we have the right message. No, we need to want to present the best artwork that we could present. As Bezalel wanted to create the best work that he could for the tabernacle. Sloppy work undermines our message. Art has the power to shape culture. What happens in the arts today will influence what happens in culture tomorrow. Abandoning the artistic community will hurt the church. We will lose opportunities of speaking the gospel, of giving life-giving message into our culture. We need to recover or possibly discover for the first time the full biblical understanding of the arts for the sake of God. We need to produce art that testifies about the truth about God and his word. With Bezalel, we, we see that the artist's call and gift come from God. We see that God loves all kinds of art. God maintains high standards of goodness, truth, and beauty. And art is for the glory of God. Bezalel was God's official artist. That's pretty cool, being God's official artist. And that job included extraordinary amount of work. It included sawing, building, sewing, cabinet making, casting, metalworking, stone cutting, and engraving. And it was all done to the glory of God. God wanted every inch to be done skillfully. So this was not the job of Moses, even though Moses was a man of God, he was a prophet. But what God needed in that moment was not a pastor, was not a preacher, was not a leader. What God needed in that moment was somebody who was artistic. God wanted Bezalel. He didn't want a prophet or a pastor or a priest. The tabernacle needed an artist. The story of Bezalel shows us that God chooses people to be artists, and their calling is legitimate. Artists are called and gifted to make things for the glory of God. This call should be pursued no matter what the sacrifices are. And yes, artists have it rough. You might have to do other things to supplement your income, but this is also part of God's plan. You should never, however, Abandon your calling. Pursue what God has called you to do. The art might be in media and photography. 
and videography and music and drawing and painting, editing, designing, all these things are God's callings. Bezalel was ordained in all kinds of craftsmanship. He was a metal worker, stone cutter, a woodworker. Some artists are good with wood, other with paper, some with sketching, others with charcoal. And God sanctifies it all. And he also sanctifies, similarly, all types of music genres as well. Some Christians think that certain forms of art are godlier than others. But be careful, because you might be condemning what God loves. God loves all kinds of art and styles and media. As Christians, we are not limited to crosses and calligraphy. God wants Christians to flourish in all their fullness and all their artistic potential. God has high standards for art as he does for everything else. He wanted Bezalel to do what he did with all that he had. If Bezalel wanted to give glory to God, it would be with his art. It would be doing something that was good, needed to be true and beautiful. Don't lower beauty. Don't communicate a lie. This doesn't mean that Christians, Christian artists can never portray anything ugly. We have to be true. We live in a world spoiled by sin. Ugliness does exist. But Christians always show that true beauty lies in the possibility of redemption. All art needs to be for the glory of God. Otherwise, art can easily become idolatry. If you do art for the sake of art and no higher purpose, then it's very likely that you'll fall into producing art for your own glory for your own recognition, instead of showing the wonders of God. Listen to this crazy story. Henri Matisse, he was a masterful painter. He painted several paintings in the chapel of the Rosary at Venice. When he was all done, he said, I did it for myself. One of the Catholic sisters heard him and objected, but you said that you were doing it for God. And he replied, yes, looking at his work. But I am a God. Matisse is hardly the only artist ever to have the delusion of deity. Kendrick Lamar in a recent song said, I am the Omega. Don't you address me unless it's with four letters. I'm not a trending topic. I'm a prophet. I answer to Metatron and Gabriel the Elohim, the rebirth, before you go, get to the Father, you gotta holler at me first. I admit, Kendrick Lamar, he is a lyrical genius, but he's an example of what's so common. When you don't do art for the glory of God, you are likely to use art for your own glory. And therefore, you fall into making images of God. You fall into idolatry. Art is a wonderful thing. It's a gift. But sometimes there are people who love it so much that they forget the giver of the gift, the giver of art. In Exodus 32, Aaron used art to make an idol, a golden calf. When people pursue art for their own purpose, they end up worshiping art rather than God. Do art for God. That means you are intentional in making things for God, and that means you'll try your best. When Bezalel made the tabernacle for God, he made a beautiful, detailed tabernacle for God. Make things for God. And that doesn't mean that you always have to put John 3.16 and whatever you do. If you're a car maker, it doesn't, have to, it doesn't mean that you have to put John 3.16 on the hood of, their car, of the car's it just means that you make good cars for God and you try your best. You recognize I'm making this and it's not just for the person, but this is also a gift to, to God. And it means that you're partnering with God also. Like, God, help me while I'm making this, whatever it is. Follow him and trusting him. 
Doing things for God means that you trust in him, that you don't become overwhelmed, that you take care of yourself. And by taking care of yourself, a practice that we see within scripture is Sabbath. Exodus 20, 8 through 11 says, Remember the Sabbath day, it is one of the commandments, to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, to your livestock or the resident alien who is within your city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. God commanded for six days that we would work. But on the seventh day, we would rest or Sabbath. That is what God commanded. Labor six days, do all your work, but the seventh day, it's a Sabbath. It's a Sabbath for the Lord. Don't do any work. No work. Don't make your kids work, your, your servants, your livestock, the foreigners. Let everyone experience the blessing of Sabbath. And let me tell you, it is a blessing. The Lord made the heavens and the earth in six days. He rested on the seventh day. There's a rhythm that we see in the very beginning. Six days, work, then rest. There's this flow to creation, to doing things. And we should follow it instead of trying to fight this flow. Let's rest. If we look at the ancient world, the Sabbath was something unique. Something that only belonged to the Israelites, to what they were doing. Rest was a gift. Not everybody was doing that. No other ancient people had the privilege of resting one day out of seven. But this gift requires extraordinary amount of trust, trust, this gift of Sabbath. It requires trust in God and his provision. Six days of hard work had to be enough. These six days, it had to be enough, enough to plant crops, enough to gather the harvest, enough to carry water, enough to spin cloth and draw sustenance from creation. It had to be enough. While Israel rested one day out of the seven, while they were resting on this day, the nation surrounding Israel continued working. They continued forging swords, feathering arrows, and training soldiers. By Sabbathing, Israel had to trust God that God would not let a day of rest lead to economic or military catastrophe. They had to trust that God would protect them even when others were still working and might even be working against them. But they were still going to rest on the Sabbath. If you are going to rest on the Sabbath, you need to trust in God's provision. If we plan to join God's rhythm of working and resting if we plan to observe the cycle of work and rest, you, you, you need to ask yourself, are you still going to be as ambitious as you were? If you take a day off, a Sabbath, and rest, actually rest, is it enough? Is working six days enough? Does it take six or seven days? What, what does it take, six or seven days, to hold a job or two? To clean the house, prepare the meals, mow the lawn, wash the car, pay the bills, finish schoolwork, yeah. Shop for clothes. Do we need all seven days to do all that? Or can we trust God that he will provide for us even when we take a day off during the course of every week? Can we take time off to worship, to pray, and to gather with others for study and encouragement. And if we do, will it make us 
more or less productive? If we are going to follow this cycle, are we going to be more productive or less productive? I argue that it makes us more productive because we gain life and energy on this day that will help us be productive all these other days. If we just work and work and work and not have rest, we won't, be, we won't have anything to give on the other days. We need this proper rhythm of work and rest. Together, work and rest, it'll be good for us, those around us, our families, our workers, and and everybody, if we just know how to rest, we won't lash out and be rude. The most precious thing you have is time. And yes, use that time for work, but also use that time to worship, rest, and play. Spend time with the Lord. Spend time working. Spend time loving your family. And rest. Don't rush. It's a a great frustration to feel rushed that you always have to do something else. And it never seems that we have enough time for work or leisure, for family or ministry. We complain, if only I had one extra day this week, then I could get all my work done. Or we say, you know, I could really use some time off. Or if only I had more time, then I would study the Bible and serve the Lord. We grumble about being overtired and overworked. It is all part of the frustration of living in a fallen world, a world vandalized by sin. But God's mercy, he has given us a remedy. One whole day out of seven to rest in God's grace. He has given us a rhythm of work and rest. Six days for labor and one day for leisure. As Philip Graham in R. Kent, he said, the Sabbath is a day for worship, a day for mercy, and a day for rest. Keeping the Sabbath doesn't seem productive. Elida and I have felt at times when we are practicing Sabbath, if people saw the Sabbath thing, they would think that we're just wasting our time. Bill Gates explained why he didn't believe in God just in terms of allocation of time resources, religion is not very efficient. There's a lot more I could be doing on a Sunday morning. There's a lot more that you could be doing than resting on Sabbath. Because it's seen, it, it is seen as unproductive, I think it's one of the reasons why it's the longest command. The command tells us what we're supposed to do. We We rest on the Sabbath every week. It gives us details. Everyone rests, our children, those who work for us. It tells us about why we should Sabbath. God rested on the seventh day. There's only a few words for do not murder, just three words in English, yet several clauses to observe the Sabbath command. While it's our duty to work, this Sabbath command reminds us that we don't work every day. When we Sabbath, we are saying, we surrender to you, God. We give up this day when we could have worked, and we give it to you. God could have asked that we Sabbath seven days out of the week, but he asked for one. Can we give him one? Can we worship on the Sabbath? Can we rest on the Sabbath. I, I've said it before. Sabbath it comes from the Hebrew word um, Shabbat. And all it means and all it means is rest or even cease to just stop. That's what we mean by Sabbath. To stop a day where business is not going as usual. It's a day for relaxation and recuperation. A day to step back from life's ordinary routines in order to rediscover God's goodness. It's up to you whether you will Sabbath or not. And if you have kids, it's up to you as a parent, as a parent to 
Make Sabbath part of the agenda for your children. It's a great way to teach children about worship and rest. And, and Sabbath really is a day to spend time with yourself, with God, and with family. Imagine the whole creation at rest. Once a week, people all over the world would stop striving and turn back to God. I think if we practice Sabbath, there would be less idolatry. What are we commanded to do? We, we, we keep the Sabbath holy. How do we do this? By working six days, and the, six, the seventh day is a holy day. It's different from all the others. On Sabbath, we look back at creation. God rested. We also look back, and we see that we're not working anymore. In Deuteronomy 5, 12, 15, we see the Sabbath command again, but the reason is different. It says, 5.15, Remember that you, talking to the Israelites, you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought you out of there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to keep the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, the Israelites would remember when they were slaves to Egypt. They would remember when they had to work seven days a week 52 weeks a year without ever getting a vacation. But now they were free. The Sabbath was a day of freedom, a day of celebration, a day to yell, we are not slaves anymore. God has liberated us. When you celebrate the Sabbath, you're yelling, you are not a slave anymore. You are not a machine made for labor you are a human who needs rest. You are a human who has been set free from the evil gods of this world that enslave people. You are not enslaved to yourself or to money or greed or ambition or individuality. On Sabbath, you are saying, I am free. God has set me free. You are not bound to work or to what you produce. You are free. God has set you free. Celebrate the Sabbath. Be free. I really hope you start practicing the Sabbath. Elida and I try to do it every week. We try to from Friday evening to Saturday evening. And you might ask, how can you Sabbath? What are some practical tips? Can you watch TV? Can you play video, video games, go to a restaurant, catch a flight back home, play a board game, or is it just Bible trivia games? I'm not going to give you absolute, universal absolutes in this area. Otherwise, I would fall like a Pharisee and fall into Phariseeism, telling you what you can or can't do in this area. You know your life. What causes work in your life? What is that? And Try for a day not to do that. For me, I, I can't read the news during the Sabbath because that just makes me think about negative things. I don't go on social media because that's really not rest. I actually put away my phone. And I, I don't want distractions. I, I want to find God on the Sabbath. And that takes saying no to some things. Just remember, the goal is on God. God and rest. That's the goal. God is inviting us to join him in this rhythm, in this interplay of work and rest. Work six days, rest one. It's a rhythm. And if we go against this rhythm, it's like we're swimming against the waves. It's hard. We'll become fatigued, burned out, anxious, depressed, starved from relationships, worn down, low energy levels, angry, tense, confused, and empty. We need Sabbath. We need rest. Stop listening to today's Pharaoh, to America's Pharaoh, who is enslaving us to making stuff for cheap, making you feel guilty if you don't work harder, if you don't work faster, if you don't work longer. You are free. Don't feel bad if you don't produce. 
America's Pharaoh is telling you, you need to make bricks. You need to work every day. He's haunting you. You need to stand up against this Pharaoh and say, I'm not a slave. I don't belong to you. We work more than ever before. We have more than ever before. And yet we're miserable. Mental and health disorders are on a rise. Schizophrenia and ADHD are up. We need rest. We need Sabbath. We are free. Our goal is not to make more money. It's to partner with God and enjoy his world. Sabbath is a way to say enough. Enough of the grind of workaholism and consumerism. Enough work. Work is good, but overworking is evil. Wanting more is evil. Sabbath is just saying enough is enough. John Mark Homer said, I don't have to work more. I don't have to buy more. I don't have to sail more. I don't have to move up in the company. I don't have to earn my father's love. I don't have anything to prove. I don't have to get a perfect score. I don't need another car. I don't need to be younger or more beautiful or have flatter abs. I don't need to have my kids in all the activities all year long. I don't need to make everybody happy. I don't need to get everything I want. My value doesn't come from what I produce, and my joy and peace don't rise and fall with my net worth. Pharaoh is dead. Egypt is in the past. I'm not a slave anymore. I'm free. I'm part of God's kingdom. He is my king, and he is not an extortioner. He's not going to extort us in work. He is not Pharaoh. God wants us to rest. He keeps the Sabbath, and he wants us to join him in this pattern. And I end with, will you rest in the Lord, the one true living God is he enough for you are you free let's all pray heavenly father thank you for today and lord I, I pray that every heart and every mind in this place was open and that they received your word that they may identify the idols in their lives the idols that caused them to become enslaved to this world, whether it's ambition or just this individualized view of reason that's so elevated that they just become bound to these idols. Lord, may they see that you are a loving God and that they may use their gifts, whether it's art or whatever it is in their life, that they may use it for you, God. But may they also know that you're not a God who just requires them to work every, every single day. You love us just as we are. And we are free. We are free. Lord, I pray that people may join the rhythm of just resting on the Sabbath and just declaring that they are free. That they may take a day off within their busy schedule, Lord. May you help them and guide them, even if it's a process. Hopefully they do one thing different on the Sabbath and build upon that. Lord, thank you for your mercy and your grace. In the name of Jesus, we all pray. Amen.